Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chef Felinas, for prayer. Uh, if you have a Bible, if you'd like to open up to Genesis chapter 6, we're looking at verses 1 to 8 here in a moment. So we've been going through Genesis starting in 1 verse 1 at the start of January, and uh, we're in May, almost the end of May, or Genesis 6. The plan, though, God willing, is to get the end of Genesis 11 by the end of June. So obviously after this, we're going to do kind of bigger, bigger chunks of, of Scripture. But it's, it's been a blessing going through the book of Genesis. We're seeking to build a biblical worldview. We want Scripture to inform our, our mind, uh, how we view the world around us, how to inform how we, how we live our lives. So we've been in, in Genesis chapter 1. We looked at God making everything good, His good creation. Then obviously Genesis 2 kind of expanding on day six of creation, man and woman coming together, marriage. On day six of creation, then Genesis 3, sin entering into the world. The past number of times we've been together, we looked at first uh, kind of the line of Cain. Cain who killed his brother Abel and the wickedness that kind of went forth from there. Then we looked at the, the line of Seth, uh, the one who was born to Adam and Eve after Abel was, was killed. And, and, and we're kind of in the middle now. Now we're going to be talking about Noah. Genesis 6, 1 to 8. But then after that, we know what's coming next is the flood. And so it's kind of like we have God created everything good. Sin entered into the world. There was Cain, and then there was Seth, and there's, there's lines being drawn out. And at the end of that, then there's, there's Noah. And then all of a sudden it goes into this this kind of these few verses are going to be a little bit tricky, like what's going on here, leading up to, and then the flood. And basically, uh, what is being happening in these verses, I hope that you'll be able to answer this, is how do you get to a place where a global flood is a solution? And I think these verses start to give us the answer to that. And also, how does, how does one get on the ark? As we'll look uh, next week at the flood, and then the story behind that, I think this scripture answers both of those questions. How do you get to a place in humanity? It's so bad that the, a global flood is a solution. And then how does one get on the ark and be saved from that judgment? So I pray that that's what this scripture will, will speak to us this evening. If you want to stand with me as we read God's word. Genesis 6, 1 to 8. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. 
May God bless his word to our souls this evening. You can have a seat. This is the, the beauty of expositional preaching. Again, is you have to deal with some hard passages. And if you were just jumping around from place to place, this maybe wouldn't be a place that you would just say, hey, I think this is what we need to hear. But I think this is God's word for us this evening. He's got a lot he wants to teach us from this text. First thing, we're going to be looking at the verses 1 to 4. And I want us to see the corruption of humanity. I think that's what's being told us. The corruption of humanity. I don't know if you've ever heard the, the saying, you know, don't lose the forest or don't lose the forest for the trees. Yeah, that's correct, right? <laughs> don't lose the forest for the trees. I, first, I just kind of want to give you the big picture of the forest because then in these passages, we're going to go into the trees. And then we're going to come back out again. We're going to go into some details just to try to figure out what's going on here. Kind of first, just big picture, humanity became corrupted. Like that, that's kind of like the, what's really being told us. Humanity became corrupted. Wickedness began to reign. Sin entered the world. Everyone was born sinful, right? After Adam and Eve. Every child after was born with a sinful nature. Prone to brokenness. Prone to rebellion against God. Going into this section, verses 1 to 4, one commentator, Alan Ross, says this, The present section of Genesis has been the subject of debate for centuries. Most scholars consider it to be one of the most difficult passages to interpret in the first five books of the Bible. So it's wonderful. <laughs> but I hope as we're going through these passages, that one thing you're going to learn, how do you work through hard parts of Scripture? How do you work through parts of Scripture that it's not so clear what it means? And I hope you can kind of get that lesson this evening. So again, just looking at verses 1 to 4, it says this, When man began, on, began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive. And they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall, shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. Well, who are the Nephilim? We're going to talk about that. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they, were, they bore children to them. These are the mighty men who are of old, the men of renown. Just again, kind of like big picture, a few things I just want to point out to you. So that this, this, these verses... They're, they're focusing on like the broad sins of everyone. Before this, it was like individual sin. You had the sin of Adam and Eve. And you had the sin of Cain. And you had the sin of Lamech. Individuals. Now this passage all of a sudden is like broadly everybody's sin. Like that's the focus. We see they're being obedient to, to being fruitful and multiply the command God gave. But of course, now that sin has entered in. Sin poisons that which God commands is good. So we're going to see that. Even there's, there's something going on too that the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive and they took them as their wives as they chose. It's actually likening back to what Eve, as she saw the fruit was good and she took the fruit and she ate it. As that type of like uh, sin is going on. But now we're going to start to go into the trees a little bit. Like, what's happening? Who is this passage talking about? We'll look at 1 to 2, we'll look at verse 3, and look at 4. I think they're all connected. And we'll see where we'll land from here. So there's a couple of, a number of different ways to understand this passage that people have brought out in the past. The first 
is people just say, oh, this is just talking about the different lines between Cain and Abel. Like that, that's what it means. It, when it's talking about the sons of God, it's the, the line of, or the line of Seth, like the godly line. When it's talking about the daughters of man, it's talking about the line of Cain. So that's one way that it has been explained. But it's like, why wouldn't you just say, hey, the sons of Seth and the daughters of Cain? Why would you use this language, uh, this strange language, sons of God? And even if you think about Seth's line, not everyone was godly. Like everyone, per everyone perished in the flood, except for eight people. So that, that's something to think about. Truthfully, before I began uh, studying this text, that's where I landed. That's where I, I, like, okay, I think I understand what's going on here. I think this is Cain's line and Seth's line and it became inter intermingled. That's where I landed before. There's an, and I guess maybe I'm putting my cards down already. That's where I landed before. But there's a couple other ways to understand this text. One, another way is just saying these are just royal kings with their harems. It's, I think that one's like the furthest to try to really push. I don't really see that happening. And then lastly, a major way to understand it is these are angels having sexual relations with humans. And so we're just going to look through, the, again, get into the trees and understand what's going on in this text. So sons of God. Like that, that's an interesting phrase to call people that. What does the rest of Scripture say? And the thing is, when you get into a hard passage of Scripture, what you want to do is use Scripture to interpret Scripture. Like, is there anywhere else that can help us understand what's being said here? So this term, sons of God, actually appears in a number of places in the book of Job. It's going to point out to you, Job 1 verse 6, it says this, Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. And also in, in Job 2 verse 1, Sons of God's referring to angels. And in, and in Job uh, 38, verse 7, as it talks about the creation of the earth, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shut up for joy. Therefore, this is where we get the theology that the, the angels were made before the stars were put into the sky. From, from this text. So sons of God in the book of Job clearly referring to angels. Other places in Scripture, Psalm 29, verse 1, is using similar language. It says this, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, or it could, could be, O sons of God, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. So people even who interpreted that passage, like, oh, this is clearly talking about angels. So the majority of times that it's used in the New Testament, there's sometimes sons of, sons of God or sons of man referring to, to Jesus or to his followers. Those are different contexts. But in the Old Testament, every time it's used, that phrase, it's always referring to angels. So it also, if you, if you look back there in Genesis, so not only does it say, so the sons of God, so that the daughters of man were attractive. Just a weird phrase, daughters of man. Every other, the genealogies before this, were constantly looking at the sons of man. Now it's all of a sudden changed to the daughters of man, as in man like mankind. Like all of humanity, the daughters represented. Again, I would say, where else in Scripture does it describe something similar to this that can help us understand it? I also want to bring your attention now to the New Testament. And looking at 1 Peter chapter 3, looking at verses 19 to 20. 
I'm going to give you a few passages. We're just going to touch on them briefly. I just want to show I can kind of start pointing light to understanding of this passage. Is it talking about angels and humans coming together? 1 Peter 3, 19-20 says this. Speaking of Christ, which he went to proclaim to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. There's these spirits who are in prison. This is actually also a very, really hard passage to interpret, but there's spirits in prison, and they did not obey when God's patience waited, and it was in the days of Noah. I also want to turn to 2 Peter 2, 4. And what I want to do is kind of just keep adding Scripture. Does this shed more light on us understanding this passage? 2 Peter 2, 4 says this, If God did not spare angels... When they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. It's like, well, when, when did that happen? When did these angels sin and they're cast into hell? I think it's also what First Peter is referring to. These angels in prison. These spirits in prison. And if we'll just turn quickly, Jude just comes before Revelation in the Bible. Jude 6 and 7. And Jude, just like 2 Peter is talking about false teachers, but it says this, The angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. There's this comparison, verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Notice when referring to Sodom and Gomorrah, it says likewise. Likewise what? Like, like the angels in the previous verse indulge in sexual immorality. Those angels, again in verse 6, who left their positions of power. I think if we, if we took all those verses and applied it, looking at Genesis chapter 6, and then if we, if we bring in Genesis 6 verse 4, talking about the Nephilim, I think it's, it seems to be referring to the intermingling of angels and women into an even more corrupted race. And I didn't have that position before I went into study, but as I was studying Scripture, as I was looking at the New Testament, as I was looking at every time that word, sons of God, is used, always referring to angels, it seems to me that is what is being told us. Now, you should, you should be asking, like, why does that even matter? <laughs> And the reason I think why it matters is because the promise made to Eve in Genesis 3.15, right? As the serpent was cursed to go on its belly, and then there's this curse made to it. It said, hey, someone from the line of Eve, the seed of Eve, is going to crush the head of the snake. And so I, I think that these angels going down, inter intermingling with humans, was to stop that from happening, this corrupting of the line. One commentator says this, which I find is helpful. This goes back to Genesis 3.15, where God prophesied against Satan that his doom would come from a seed of a woman. So if Satan could prevent the arrival of this seed, then his career would be eternally safe. However, Satan at this point in history had no clue about which woman would bear this seed. His likely solution was to send his angelic cohorts to the earth to corrupt the women by taking human form 
and intermarrying with them. If womankind was corrupted by their angelic mates, then the seed would not arrive. I think that's what's happening, this corruption of the human race. I think that's why it's so serious. Looking again at Genesis 6, so you get to verse 3, and verse 3 is a little complicated too. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh, his day shall be 120 years. I don't know if you have a footnote in your Bible. It can also be translated, My spirit will not contend with man for 120 years. It could be translated, will not remain with man. This is the only time this Hebrew word appears in the Old Testament. So we kind of have two options, like what's being said there. One is... From now on, humans are only going to live 120 years. If you look at their lineage before, you're getting up to like 900 and something. From now on, you're only going to get 120 years. Or the second option is, hey, I'm not going to contend with this corrupted race forever. There's 120 years to go. right? And then judgment. And the, the flood is going to come. So I, I previously, again, before going to this passage, I, was, I thought it was 120 years of human life after that, that's where the number kind of went to. But then in, in reading, I'm like, I, I'm not sure. So Gordon Wenham says this, with the wider setting of Genesis, this interpretation is problematic for Noah and for many of his descendants who lived hundreds of years, Genesis 11. Even Abraham lived to 175, Isaac to 180, Jacob to 147 years. So if he's saying you're going to be 120 years and, and so many people live past there, is that what's being said. It seems like within the context of what is being said, it's like you have 120 years, I won't contend with man forever, like judgments come. And so just looking at verses 1, 2, and 3, you're like, okay, but like that was simple. <laughs> and then you get to, again, verse 4, you have the Nephilim, or Nephilim. A literal translation of, of Nephilim is the fallen ones. Which again, I think it helps to understand where the sons of God being talked about, the fallen ones. I think fallen angels. Again, remember what Jude said in Jude chapter, or Jude 6, talking about the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling place. Is that, is that referring to the Nephilim? The fallen ones. It does say this, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. And I think it just means it's like when it began, when they began to intermingle with the humans and they stayed and they continued to do that. Because if you think they, they, they came on the earth in those days and also afterward, the flood's coming still. But when the flood comes, there's only eight people who survive it. So the Nephilim didn't continue on the earth afterward. I think that can help us understand what's, what's going on. But one of the arguments against this if you, if you would read up on, there's a lot that's been written, a lot of ink that's been spilled. People will point to Numbers 13, 33. I don't know if you know the story, the 12 spies go into the promised land as they, as they come out of Egypt, and they're supposed to take the land. So they send in 12 spies, and they're going to go check out the land. And they come back, and there's two spies, right? Joshua and Caleb are like, we can take the land. God is with us. But then there's 10 spies who are like, they give a bad report. They're like, there's no way we can do that. And one of the reasons they gave is there's, the Nephilim are there. These giants in the land. And so people point to that like, well, they still lived on. Well, they're giving a bad report. They weren't telling the truth. Joshua and Caleb are the one telling the truth. We can take it. So what they were saying were lies. They were basically making excuses. 
Why not to go into the land? I think that's why they talked about the Naphtali. It reminds me of Proverbs 26, 13, where like the sluggard said, hey, there's a lion outside. Like, why would I go out to work? Like, just making excuses. I might get eaten by a lion, or else I would go outside and work. We might go take the promised land, but there's those Nephilim there. Like, they're making excuses. And, and I know as we, as we talk about this, another thing, I had a problem with angels and women. I'm like, how, how does that work? That was my big thing before. But every time we see in Scripture, angels appear, they're always what? They always appear as males. And so it seems like that this is what they got in trouble for. This is what they got put in prison for, these spirits in prison. But again, so the Nephilim continues, were on the earth in those days and also after, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. I just want you to see this. These are the mighty men or the heroes of old. These are the famous men. Like, they were legends. But then we see, think about what it says in Genesis 6, 3. Like God saying, I'm not going to contend with you anymore. Like it's wicked. But then from man's perspective, like these are the men of renown. These are the heroes. It reminds me, I was, I was reading this week in Luke chapter 16. And, and Luke chapter 16 verses 14 to 15, I'll read this to you. The Pharisees who are lovers of money, Jesus told this parable of a dishonest manager, and the Pharisees who are lovers of money heard all these things and they ridiculed him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Hear this. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. So in Luke 16, that's talking about money. He, like, men just like, love to lift up money and wealth. In Genesis, though, we're talking about people, the Nephilim, the, the men of renown. Where in God's eyes, it's absolutely wicked. I don't want you growing up, who you kind of follow, who you like. I was into sports. I like Michael Jordan, great basketball player. Divorced his wife, has a gambling problem. The men of renown. I like golf, like Tiger Woods, had a problem with adultery. Not a nice person, not just to paint the sins of the people, but it's interesting, the people that we hold in high regard. And we see that in this passage, the Nephilim, the fallen ones, were men of renown. So I just say this, and looking at that passage, here's a warning for us all. Be careful of those we look up to. Be careful of those we look to as examples. Where we may say, oh yes, they're so amazing at what they do, but what about in God's eyes? That was, that was the Nephilim. All that to be said, Derek Kinder is, is helpful here. He says this, the point of this cryptic passage, whichever way we take it, is that a new stage has been reached in the progress of evil. With God's bounds overstepped to yet another realm, humanity has been corrupted as a whole. You're like, maybe it would have been quicker if I would have just said that. <laughs> but you want to just dig in, like, how did I understand angels intermarrying with humans? I wanted to just take you through that process. But that's what I really want you to see. Humanity has been corrupted as a whole. Where if we look at verses 5 to 7, now, instead of just all of humanity, now it's going to the individual. Now we see the depravity of the human heart. 
If you look at verse 5 with me, it says this, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Wicked thoughts, wicked actions. There's a, there, again, there's a play happening here on the words. Think about the sons of God saw that the, the daughters of men were attractive, and they went after them, and they sinned. That's what they saw. These are the men of renown, and it was celebrated. But what did God see? God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. God sees it all. He not only saw that, but he saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The, that word intention is related to the same word that is used for God forming Abraham in Gen or not Abraham, Adam in Genesis 2:7. Where God formed man and everyone after him for his own intentions. Now man's every intention of his heart was evil continually. One commentator says this, the correlation is this, God formed humanity by design, but humanity took its God-given abilities to devise or design evil continually. This is what we see, the corruption of the human heart. Again, verse, verse 5 is one of the clearest descriptions of the corruption of, of mankind's nature, depravity, spiritual bankruptcy. We're, we're going to come back, back to that. In verse 6 and 7, And the Lord regretted that He had made man on the earth, and it grieved Him to His heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man from whom, whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Judgment upon the earth. It says this, The Lord regretted He made man. It grieved Him in His heart. Does God regret? Other translations said His heart was deeply troubled. Maybe the question, does God change His mind? What's happening is, it's what's called an anthropomorphism. It's just a fun word to say. What, what it means is just using like human Emotions or human action ascribe it to God. Anthromanmorphism. That's what's happening. Like where we say that God holds us in his hands. Like does does he actually like he does, he but where are his hands? Where God turns his face away, using that type of language to describe to God, but it's not actually happening. What's happening here is it's God responds to sin. It underscores the point of the passage. Men and women are so desperately wicked that they grieve God's heart to the extent that rather than comfort them, He'll destroy them. God's standards do not change. He merely reacts to man in different ways depending on whether man obeys or disobeys Him. Right? God's not changing. It's man who's changing. Man's heart is evil. God is grieved. God has grieved in His creation the, the depravity of mankind. Just think about this for a moment. Do you think God is grieved with our world now? The abortion, the, the drug overdoses, the sexual promiscuity being so rampant, sexual perversion, the wickedness of this world. This question for you is, is your heart grieved? At what you see in the world today, does it ever cause you to cry? Does it cause you to pray? Where if, if God's heart is grieved, is our heart grieved?
Verse 5 is so, so sobering. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. You're like, oh, well, praise God, like the flood's coming. It's going to wipe everything. We're going to start afresh. But unfortunately, even Genesis 8, 21, that hardness of heart, that sinfulness of heart continues. Genesis 8, 21 says this. God says this, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Now this is the part where I want to build a biblical worldview with this passage. People often say, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I'm actually, I'm actually a fairly good person. But it's like, compared to who? I'm a fairly good artist compared to a two-year-old. <laughs> and that might even be arguable. <laughs> right? But to anyone who has any sense of drawing, I have nothing. <laughs> nothing to bring to the table. Because what I want you to do, friends, I just want you to see with that thought, like, actually, I'm a pretty good person. What does the Bible say? What does Scripture say? We want to hold ourselves to Scripture. I just want to take you through a few passages here, building that worldview, the biblical worldview. Jeremiah 17, 9 says this, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So when people say, yeah, yeah, God knows my heart. It's like, yes, it's desperately wicked. Psalm 51, verse 5, David, I forgot caught in adultery with Bathsheba, his repentance, but he cried out to God and he wrote this, Psalm 51 verse 5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Even in birth, just right from the get-go, we're sinful. We see this, this same wording in the New Testament. Romans 3.10 to verse 12, it says this, No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. This is what Scripture says about us. Paul even writes this in Romans 7, verse 18. Paul talking about this wrestling going on. The wrestling within his flesh and his sinful heart. He says in Romans 7, 18, I, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Brothers, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Friends, I want you to see what Scripture says about our heart, about our condition. Because how bad something is determines the need of the cure, or what needs to be done. If you think, if you're going to go buy a house, and you're like, well, okay, it just needs a little bit of paint, They'll, they'll fix her up. You're like, that's not bad at all. But you go to buy the house and there's cockroaches everywhere and there's termites that are just taking out the foundation. Like it's just going to sway in the wind and fall over. What is a much different way in which you diagnose it? Or if you think like if someone, if you scrape your knee, you put a Band-Aid on, right? You guys do that? Oh, just kids maybe. I don't know. But like, if you just scrape your knee, okay, if you break your arm, you put it in a cast. What if you have a tumor, a cancerous tumor that's ripping through your body? Like you're going to do, you're going to diagnose that very differently. You're like, I'm actually not that bad. Where the Bible is like, no, you have this cancer inside you. It's destroying everything. The foundation's rotten, rotten to the core. 
This is our condition. This was the condition in the days before the flood. So I want you to see here in this passage, there's corrupt humanity. Everyone. Corrupt right down to the core. The heart was depraved. But look, turn again there to Genesis chapter 6. Look at verse 8 with me. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. I love it. Verse 8, this is my point, but the grace of God. Like we have to see how bad it truly is in this passage. One just said, we have to see how dark it is. How hopeless it is. To see the light shining there in verse 8. You know, it's like, I don't know if anyone ever had glow sticks. You break and they, they shine or a flashlight. Useless during the day. Or you, you can't see them. But when it gets dark out, that's when you see how bright it's glowing. I think that's what's happening in these passages. It's such darkness, 1 to 7. Look at verse 8. Do you see God's grace? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now, that word favor, it actually means grace. It's not something that Noah did. It's not something he accomplished. God gave him favor. It was God's grace. Helen Ross writes this, grace is unmerited favor. In fact, when the word grace or favor is used, it usually means that the recipient deserves the opposite of the favor. It's not that Noah was the most righteous person on the earth and so God decided to save him. No, he was a sinner and God saved him from the judgment by his grace. It was solely his grace. Even when I was preparing this passage, I thought I knew what was happening. I was going to just point out of, of Noah obeyed God. We're going to talk about that next week. Genesis 6, 9, Genesis 6, 22, Genesis 7, 5. Noah obeyed God. But we see here before any of that happened, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. He didn't do anything. It was God's grace. It was God's mercy. And next week we'll more fully look at Noah, the ark, and the flood. But friends, I just want you to see that. How do, how do you get on the ark when everyone else is going to be doomed to the flood? Well, it's God's grace. It was God's mercy. But this week, I, we see how bad the world was. We see the reason for the judgment to come. We see Noah receiving mercy from God. But what about us? In the time that we live, we already talked about our heart condition before the Lord. We already talked about how bad it is. How are we to have a different story, a change in our situation outside of God's help? How does the Bible describe our condition outside of Christ? Jeremiah 17, now we have wicked hearts. Romans 3, we're not seeking God. Ephesians 2 would say we're dead in our sins. And 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says we're blinded by the prince of this world. Outside of Christ, that's what we have. We have wicked hearts not seeking God. We're dead and we're blind. And how is a wicked, dead, and blind person going to do in terms of following God? Nothing. You can do nothing. But friends, hear this. Romans 5, 8. But God shows His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't die for the ones who had together. He died for the wicked. He died 
for the unjust. He died for sinners like you and for me. That is the most beautiful thing. That Jesus on the cross took our sins, took the punishment that we deserved. And anyone who would, who would see their sin, who actually see their condition, ah, oh, it's this bad, I can do nothing about it. Turn and look to Jesus Christ in faith, can be forgiven, can be made new. It's the glory of the gospel. Just think about different examples. In, in the gospels, you have Mary Magdalene. She had seven spirits, like seven demons. Think she was able to turn to God? No. But by the grace of God, she was able to be forgiven, to be changed. We know in the, in the Bible, we have the Apostle Paul. But before that, he was killing Christians. He was against the church fighting until what? Until God opened his eyes. He was literally blind. And he turned and he started following Jesus Christ. Another example I'd like to bring before your attention. There's a guy by the name of John G. Patton. He was a missionary to the New Hebrides in like the late 1800s. You should read his autobiography, John G. Patton, missionary to the, the New Hebrides. Who is he a missionary to? He's a missionary to cannibals. And his story is unbelievable how God used him to reach these people, these cannibals. And then some of them came to know Jesus Christ by His grace. We're able to take communion. Instead of blood on their hands from man, they're remembering the blood shed for them on the cross. That's God's grace. That's Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Have you found favor in the eyes of the Lord? Because friends, if we truly see our condition, see what it is, then if we truly see what Jesus Christ has done, we see God's mercy, His kindness. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says this, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. Like truly seeing what Jesus has done, truly seeing your own condition, Lord, forgive me. He changes you. But it also says this, where worldly grief produces death. Where someone says, actually, I'm not that bad. I'll just put a band-aid on it. I'm actually a good person. I don't, I don't need him. Friend, what is your response? If this is your story, like if you can say, yes, I have found favor in the eyes of the Lord, and you've repented and found God's grace to be true, to be all you need, what do you do? So I'm to read a few passages to finish. Going back there to Romans. Romans chapter 8. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 7. Paul continuing on, talking about his sinful nature. He says this in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Look what he writes next. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I love that. Yes, his broken heart. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He says something similar in 1 Corinthians 15. I just want to show you again. He's talking about death. Talking about sin. Verse 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, or where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. Like it's, it's something that's going to happen to us all, but he doesn't leave us there. In verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
I love that. You see one to seven. You see the brokenness of our hearts. You see the, the depraved humanity. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And can you say, yes, I found favor in the eyes of the Lord. You can say, well, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. Can you do that? My, my prayer in sharing this, this, this message was if, if you have a view of yourself, like, actually, I think I have it all together. I hope your heart was exposed by the Word of God. You see, actually, I'm, a little, I'm more broken than I thought I was. But I pray if you came here and you knew, you're like, man, I know I'm a sinner. Then I pray the, the majesty of Jesus Christ got a lot bigger. You can see His mercy and see His grace. You see the invitation to find forgiveness. Friends, in, in closing, there's, there's a... Apparently there's a, some hockey games happening in our province. <laughs> I haven't watched hockey in like 25, 30 years. I've started, started watching. I'm curious. Whichever team you're cheering for, like if your team won, like would you, you'd be pretty happy. You'd be telling a lot of people about it. You'd be fired up. Friends, we're talking about something so much greater. If, if we can say, yes, I was dead, now I'm alive in Christ. I was blind, spiritually blind, now I see. We can say, yes, I was an enemy of God, but now I'm one of His children. Like, that's amazing. Friends, this is all of God's favor, God's mercy. May we just continually turn back and give thanks to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's where we need to land. It's just with thanksgiving, like verbally, by ourselves, with other people. While you're driving to work, while you're at work, while you're in the garden, while you're mowing the lawn, wherever. Like, continually thinking, like, but the grace of God, where would I be? But like Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you know Jesus Christ, you found favor in the eyes of the Lord. We should be overflowing with thanksgiving. Now think about it and turn back and praise Him. So friends, a, a hard passage to work through, but oh, I, I pray you see the goodness there in verse 8. If you'll bow with me, close this time in prayer. Oh God, Lord, I, I pray all that was from you, Lord, you'd seal in our hearts that which is from me. May we forget about it completely. Oh Lord, I pray we would, with ever-increasing wonder and joy, Behold your mercy found in Jesus Christ. Lord, may it lead to thanksgiving. May it lead to worship. May it lead to life surrendered to you and for your glory. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.